Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. My guest this week is the co-executive director of Yet Again, Joe Collins. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So for listeners who perhaps haven't heard of your organisation or may have heard of it, but don't know exactly what it is you do, what is Yet Again? At its heart, we are an anti-atrocity organisation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were set up in the latter half of 2020, um, not just to raise awareness of modern atrocities. You know, Nathan, you'll know as well as I do that you can go onto news sources. You will see instances of modern atrocity no matter where you look in all parts of the world. Um, we were set up not just to raise awareness, but to understand it. Why does it happen? You know, we've heard this promise of never again, time and time again, and it's failed. So the question is, why does modern atrocity continue to occur yet again? It's why we were set up. Um, it's why we've, you know, we undertake various work, which we do now. Um, that's fundamentally our aim and it's who we are. Well, you're yeah, absolutely right to point out the phrase never again. You know, we hear it every year on uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. We hear it when referencing other atrocities, as you say. And really, it, it's almost in some ways, very sadly, become a bit of a soundbite for leaders and uh, parliamentarians in, in debates and discussions. So what are you doing at yet again to ensure that never again is so much more than a slogan or a saying? Uh, a key question. So I think just as a starting point, it really comes down to who do we want to be? You have a choice. Everyone has a choice. Either we can choose to be passive bystanders, let the world pass us by, see these atrocities occur at far corners across the earth and think, what's that got to do with me? I don't care. Why should I stand up or do anything? Or we choose to be active upstanders. That means being vocal. It means being loud. It means saying the status quo can't continue. And it means working with others to instigate change. So yet again, we work cross-community, cross-parliamentary way. Um, We work with various NGOs, individuals, survivors, to try and institutionalize, institutionalize change. How can we see change in the world? So we work quite prominently with the World Uyghur Congress, Stop Uyghur Genocide and the Uyghur Diaspora to figure out exactly what can we do? You know, we are seeing genocide in China now as we are recording this podcast. And what are we doing in the UK to stop it? The answer is very little. 
Uh, and unfortunately, we're having we're seeing quite substantial battles over what I consider to be the bare minimum, sanctioning Chinese officials, divesting trade, things like that we shouldn't be doing, and yet we're having to fight tooth and nail to get it done. So I think, although I'd love to see much greater action and much greater conversations about what can be done to prevent atrocity going forward, to start with, we just have to try and get people on the agenda that change can and must occur. Well, you're, you're right to point out some of the atrocities that are going on in China at the moment. And we'll, we'll look at those in more detail in a moment. But you, you mentioned there that it's all about working across communities, across parties, across parliaments. So how, how did you get involved in yet again and involved in this advocacy work? So I actually began, um, I'd say 2017, um, I was in yeah, sixth form at the time, I'm trying to think of my years now, I was in sixth form at the time and um, I took part on the Lessons from Auschwitz project at the Holocaust Educational Trust. It's a brilliant programme, I don't, I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, they usually take around two students from participating schools, you um, take part in seminars, workshops, you visit Auschwitz with the trust, you hear from a survivor and you have to complete a next steps or a project. It's a fantastic programme that instilled really those values within me to stand up and be that active upstander, as I said at the beginning. That's where that came from, that passion, and meeting and learning from those Holocaust survivors. I think you can, when you hear from a survivor, particularly a Holocaust survivor, and they share their trauma, I don't think there's any part of you that can say, I'm just going to sit by and allow things today happen to other people I don't I don't think anyone can um so that's I, I began with that project in 2017 and I became a regional ambassador with the trust um, and did various projects with them over the years and through my university degree um and when it came to the time of picking my dissertation bearing in mind I've been doing this for nearly four years now I said what do I want to do well I, I've learned and studied the holocaust um, a lot I studied it in Israel I studied it in Budapest um but there's always that lingering thought of never again. Why do I always hear never again? And yet again, it continues to occur. So I chose to do, uh, as any good law student would do, uh, the Genocide Convention. Um, and I looked into the failures, or as I see the failures of the Genocide Convention, um, its restrictive drafting, the impact it's had in terms of prosecutions, and really just looking at the broader concept of um, passiveness when it comes to atrocities and genocide. Um, and I completed that. I love my dissertation. I love that process. Um, but there were really key lessons I took from it and I wanted to share them. Uh, and originally I just wanted to do a blog post and I started typing them. I still have those original drafts from a few years ago yeah. um, when I was typing out these blogs. And I realised if I want to get this across, there are going to be quite a few blog posts and there's going to be quite a lot of content to consider. So I actually thought, you know, why don't I set up my own blog? And I messaged some other people I knew at the time, um, regional ambassadors um, from the Holocaust Education Trust, and I said, do you want to set this up? Um, and they were all for it. We were going to go for an international criminal justice blog. And that's what we were set up to do. Um, very soon, we started working with survivors, other organisations. And naturally, I think you may have felt this as well with some of the work you've done, that advocacy work just follows. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's sort of how we've grown as yet again. We were set up with that very simple miss mission of, raising awareness, developing understanding, and just organically growing into more of a movement and an advocacy exercise, which we are today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that point you, you made there about actually speaking to people who've been experiencing the, these atrocities and survivors of uh, these events, it, 
it, it really does move you. And on, on this show, I've spoken to uh, Nathan Law from the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement. I've spoken to Timothy Cho, who's a North Korean defector. And it, you can't help but feel moved listening to their testimony. And it, it, re it really does really inspire you to to make a difference so it's, it's great that you're, you're you're getting involved in doing this through yet again and of course yet again is a youth-led organization so how do you think that particular aspect of yet again makes you stand out from other human rights advocacy groups um i certainly think there's an appetite particularly among young people to contribute to things such as this i think actually it's very rare to have it led by young people in particular. Uh, and what I would say is usually when you hear the, the phrase young people, you think, oh, bless them, they're, they're trying out, that you know, they're having a go. Um, but what we've really tried to do at yet again is, is understand that as young people, as graduates, we are able to genuinely contribute. We are able to genuinely make a difference. Um, and we saw that, I think, with things such as the genocide amendment or other campaigns we've led on, even though we're in our early 20s, by no means does that rule us out as people, you know, who can't make arguments, who can't lobby, who can't be good advocates. Um, and I think really what we're trying to do yet again is harness that passion young people have, and they are certainly passionate, and really give it that energy and that direction so that it can yield the best results. And we're certainly seeing that. Uh, perhaps it's what sets out from other organisations. Again, I don't know. Uh, the appeal of yet again to other people, I, I leave to them. Um, but I certainly think that we are unique in what we're doing um, and we have a very strong vision of where we go from here. So this is really just the beginning. Mm -hmm. So what, what other issues and uh, campaigns are, are yet again working on? You, you've touched briefly on some stuff you're doing around uh, China. So what other areas of human rights advocacy and uh, criminal justice, international justice are, are you working on at the moment? So I think, you know, you don't have to look too far in the news to realise the situations that are going on. I mean, just simply look at Myanmar, Tigray, Sudan, even the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And there are mass and severe human rights violations occurring as we speak. Um, and we're certainly willing uh, and prepared to, to cover all of those aspects as and when we can. Um, primarily, we've been working very closely with Uyghur organisations. We're now starting to work with the Tigray Youth Network which for those listening, if you, if you haven't followed them yet, please do. They're a fantastic organisation that are really looking into what is happening in Tigray and the persecution of Tigrayans. Um, we are willing to uh, and prepared to learn. I think that's the biggest part, actually, I'd say, with young people, is when we set up yet again, none of us have said we're experts at all. And we don't want any of us to be. What we want is people who are willing to learn, genuinely learn take that time, invest, hear survivor stories, listen to people, find out what you can do to make a difference. That's really at the heart of what we're doing. And we're, we're doing that now on Tigray, we're doing that on Myanmar. Um, as you say, we've done it with the Uyghurs um, in Hong Kong as well. And we also put things out uh, on Afghanistan. Um, at the moment, I still consider ourselves in formative stages. I'm incredibly proud of what the team has achieved, but I still see this as just the beginning. Um, and I, I, I really like the opportunity that we can go out there and we can cover so many different atrocity-based issues. And a lot of them, I just like to say this, are interconnected. And I'll use the example of gender violence in atrocity. Uh, it's something actually in 2022 I'm particularly keen to look at because whether it's sexual violence as a weapon of war in Tigray, in Myanmar, 
whether it's um, gender violence with forced sterilisation and forced abortions in the Uyghur region. We frequently see women's bodies in particular used as tools by regimes. And the reason I'm keen to look at that is because, A, it's prolific. It's everywhere. But second of all, I think think I said B, B, we have a situation in the UK where the FCDO has a conflict strategy, has a strategy surrounding conflict. It doesn't have an atrocity-based strategy. Um, And the difficulty with that, particularly with gender violence, is where you look at things such as the Uyghurs, that is occurring practically in peacetime. You know, they're not in a conflict. Um, But yet we don't have any strategy or way of dealing with those sorts of situations. So I think looking at gender violence in particular, but also looking at atrocity more holistically is something in terms of our advocacy and our campaigns, we're certainly keen to do. So just on on the atrocities that the the Uyghur people are facing, it's it's something we've looked at a few times on the show and and also in a broader context when looking at China. And it's something that's it's always clear when it's reported on that these are just some horrendous crimes that are taking place. And yet the, the Chinese government, it's it almost doesn't seem to be held account to account for what, as you're saying, you are alleging and believed to be genocide. You know, very few have actually come out and said this. I think only the U.S. government has made that official declaration. Other parliaments have. So why are any legal routes not being pursued to actually hold the Chinese government to account for, uh, as, as we say, what is being perceived by so many to be a genocide? So. What are the ordinary legal routes? I think it's important to start there. Uh, Most people, including the UK government, uh, presume those to be either the International Criminal Court or the International Court of Justice, or potentially any ad hoc tribunal set up by the UN. Both of those courts do not have jurisdiction when it comes to China. In terms of the International Criminal Court, um, the ICC only has jurisdiction where, um, based upon state parties to the Rome Statute, China's not a state party. Um, so there's no jurisdiction there. The other way of sort of manoeuvring, manoeuvring jurisdiction in this area where you're not a state party is if the UN Security Council makes a referral to the ICC. It's going to be no surprise to anyone that with China and Russia as permanent members on the UN Security Council, they would use their power of veto on those sorts of actions. So the ICC is just not a possibility at all. In terms of the ICJ, because that's not a criminal court, both parties have to consent to um, the ICJ having jurisdiction. China won't consent and has already indicated it wouldn't consent. So within the Genocide Convention, there's a particular provision uh, which requires that anything in terms of interpretation, uh, dispute, any form of um, resolution that needs to come about based on the convention is to be referred to the ICJ. And China, in implementing the Genocide Convention, reserved that particular article. So they already haven't implemented that article. So we know they won't consent to the ICJ. So the two main routes we would expect are blocked, gridlocked by China and its power at the UN. So where do we go? How do we hold them to account? Well, we tried within the UK to have the UK government amend its policy. Their policy is that genocide determination can only be done by what they consider competent courts, which they describe as domestic criminal courts or international courts. And as I've already described, those are not possible. So what happens in that scenario? 
That was the question we posed to the UK government. And frankly, the answer was, well, nothing. We don't have an answer. Um, and we're just going to stick with this policy, even though we know it doesn't work in this circumstance. Um, so that's one of the things we really push the UK government to do. In terms of accountability, um, there is actually a really interesting development with Rodney Dixon QC. And for those listening, I, I would recommend just Googling sort of the work he's doing at the moment. And um, he's trying to bring a case before the ICC based on other jurisdictional arguments. So he's looking at how this, uh, this atrocity is sort of spilling over into other countries and whether or not their jurisdictions can be linked. Um, so it's a very interesting case. I, I, I follow that um, if you can. Um, but ultimately, I think holding China to account has to be political. It has to be policy-based uh, because courts aren't there. And I think that's a good lesson generally. If we look at when a court intervenes or when some form of retribution comes about when it comes to courts, it always happens after the fact. With Bosnia and Rwanda, you've got justice, if that's what you want to call it, and retribution after the fact. You get that with nearly all court cases. With genocide, if we have an obligation to prevent and punish genocide, you don't want to wait till after the fact. It's not possible. You want to intervene at the point it's happening or before. And I think that's where, as I said, that atrocity prevention strategy really should be starting to consider now by the government, but we're just not seeing any headway there at all. Yeah. And just last month, you, you wrote to the Asia minister, Amanda Milling, and in no uncertain terms, really, calling on her and the government to really step up and uphold the UK's uh, historic commitments to stopping genocide through the Genocide Convention, as you say, and other uh, uh, treaties and documents that the UK is a party to. Uh, so have, have you had a response yet to your letter to the minister or even from the Foreign Office? No. Um, and I think what we find most concerning uh, with the situation with Amanda Miller, and just to give some context as well, um, in December, I think um, in sort of mid to early December, the Uyghur Tribunal, which had heard, it's the most comprehensive body of evidence that has ever been heard about the Uyghur genocide, passed judgment. It was chaired by Sir Geoffrey Nice QC, prominent barrister. He's prosecuted cases at the ICC, ICTY and so forth. Um, passed judgment that China is committing genocide, is committing crimes against humanity and is committing torture. And that judgment came out in December. Exactly one week after that judgment came out, who was the first person the Minister for Asia met, the Chinese ambassador, to discuss, and, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. No, I tell a lie, I won't remember off the top of my head. I screenshot it because for situations like this. She said, and I'll quote, today I had my first, best, uh, first meeting with China's ambassador. We discussed the scope for working together and strengthening our economic ties and I raise the UK's concerns about Hong Kong and the human rights violations in Xinjiang. So one week after the Uyghur Tribunal's judgment, she doesn't meet with the Uyghur diaspora. She doesn't meet with the Conservative MPs that have been sanctioned. She doesn't meet with the tribunal or any other victims of the PRC. She meets with the perpetrator. Frankly, I find that appalling. But just on another note, the, the actual message of the tweet, I just think is frankly illogical. Imagine how that meeting went. Now, let's discuss business. Let's discuss trade relations. Let's discuss bilateral trade. At the end of the meeting, I'd also like to point on, put on record uh, the UK's um, concern about the genocide you're perpetrating. The ambassador goes, your concern is noted. And then move on to carry on discussing trade. 
That is not an effective strategy for preventing genocide. It's not a realistic strategy when it comes to China at all. And regrettably, it seems to be the approach the UK is taking more broadly. Again, if I can quote, and I have got this to hand, from the integrative review that came out earlier this year, which actually identified the threat of China, this is what was in the integrative review in terms of the government strategy to China. Quote, China and the UK both benefit from bilateral trade and investment, but China also presents the biggest state-based threat to the UK's economic security. So irrespective, parking aside the genocide, the human rights violations, the illegality of the PRC, we have identified the PRC to be one of the biggest threats to the UK, and yet we're still considering aligning ourselves economically to that regime. At best, it's reckless. At worst, it's idiotic. And I think it's why we, as you say, we were relatively robust in our letter with Amanda Milling because this cannot continue. Mm. It's unsustainable. We are slowly seeing the tide turning in terms of China. We had that golden era under Cameron where we rolled out the red carpets and we wanted to show um, President Xi Jinping that we were an economic force. We are slowly starting to see those, those relationships Fizzle is the best word I can do it because anything concrete beyond that is just not happening. Um, much more needs to be done. And I think the approach we're taking at the moment is fundamentally wrong. And on a personal note, you know, as a conservative, I actually find fundamentally anti-conservative. Yeah. I mean, especially given that Amanda Milling until recently was the chairman of the Conservative Party to not even meet with the, the sanctioned MPs in her own party, the party which she led. I mean, it, you're, you're absolutely right to point out it is illogical. So, so t- taking all, all this uh, into account, how, how do you think the government should change its position? What are you calling on the Foreign Office to do in terms of changing policy and creating comprehensive strategy? So our biggest, biggest long-term aim with the PRC, and it's a broader aim, is to cease bilateral trade and remove those economic ties. Now, that's not something that can be done overnight, and it is a task. But at the moment, not only we're not seeing that happen, we're seeing the exact opposite. As Amanda Milling said in her tweet, we're looking at strengthening our economic ties, exactly what we should not be doing. The reason why the UK, other Western nations, and this is, again, part of China's policy um, towards the Western world, is it relies on its economic leverage. That's what it relies on. We know that, whether it's in civil society, the government definitely knows that. And yet we're prepared to make ourselves subject to that leverage. It doesn't make sense. So that's the biggest, for me, biggest turning point, what the government needs to start pursuing. The second thing is that in terms of 2022, we do have certain policy asks of the government. One of them is to continue sanctioning senior leaders of the PRC. We introduced some sanctions, the UK did, Um, In response to our campaign for the genocide amendment, it was Dominic Raab's attempt of saying, no, we are doing something, we promise, we've sanctioned these few individuals. Uh, That didn't involve Chen Quango, who is the architect of of this genocide in Xinjiang. Um, And as, again, the tribunal pointed out, the primary responsibility lies with the senior leadership and with President Xi himself. So sanctions are, as a route, the bare minimum. Um, Nusgarni MP, she's the Conservative MP for Wildham, um, sits on the 
Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Select Committee, and they produced a report in March of last year, which looked in particular at um, the links between Uyghur slave labour and brands operating in the UK. There is, in essence, a blacklist, which the government now needs to address. Um, without going into too much detail, unless you want me to, um, at the moment, the present legislation around modern slavery is woefully inadequate. And what Dominic Raab proposed as a compromise to buy back support was as useful as putting a wet paper towel on a compound fracture. It would have done absolutely nothing to address the endemic failings of our present legislation. I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. Okay. Presently, to be compliant with transparency obligations under the Modern Slavery Act, and all an organisation has to do is either write this, I have done nothing to address modern slavery in my organisation, and they will be compliant with Section 54 of the Modern Slavery Act. That's it. That's their obligation, is to either report what they're doing and they can choose what they report on or say they've done nothing. There's no obligation to do anything at all. That's how woefully inadequate it was. And what was the government's response to that? We'll try and get more people to make those statements. What, what, what effect do you think those statements are going to have in tackling modern slavery? Seriously. I mean, I don't believe the government think it's going to work. Um, they can't think it's going to work. Um, but that's what they're going for anyway. It's a cheap, easy way to say, yes, and the euphemism the government uses at the dispatch box is we're strengthening the modern slavery. Act. So that's the euphemism they use. Right. But that's the reality. So what we're asking is to take real action against these slave, lab, um, slave labour links. Look at what the US has done. The US has imposed um, import bans on cotton and tomato products coming from Xinjiang because we know they're most likely tainted by slave labour mm. as a bare minimum. We're not doing anything of the sort. So there's some of the objectives we have for this year. Uh, one other one that I would like to quickly draw attention to as well is actually something we're hoping to involve the Women and Equality Select Committee on and women's organisations more broadly, is to look at the way in which the UK and other states can address gender violence in atrocities. Um, the reason I say that in particular with the Uyghurs the basis of the Uyghur Tribunal's judgment for genocide was because of the forced abortions and forced sterilizations. It's Uyghur women who are bearing the brunt of genocide. Uh, and we're asking at least women's organizations and internationally to look at what we can do. Um, the biggest thing I think to note is that the UK certainly can do more unilaterally, but of course, when it comes to the PRC, multilateral action is needed. And that has to go beyond statements, condemnations, convening meetings, actual concrete multilateral action. We're very happy to see a diplomatic boycott. Took a while, a very long time, actually, for the government to announce it. And I'll be honest, I think it was more on the hoof at PMQs. I think Serene Duncan-Smith may have thrown Boris Johnson off slightly. Um, but I'm glad it's happening and it should be happening. But there is so much more we can be doing. Oh, well, well, we'll touch on the Winter Olympics and the boycott in a moment, but I just want to pick up on something you said there about a, a genocide amendment. Now, for listeners who perhaps haven't followed this story too closely or may have heard it, not entirely sure what it is, or simply haven't heard of a genocide amendment, could you just briefly outline what this campaign was about and what it sought to achieve? Yes. So as I mentioned sort of earlier on, ICC, ICJ, no jurisdiction, you cannot hold charge accountable that way. Now, the problem is, in term, for the Genocide Convention, 
or at least for many states to recognise I have obligations under the Genocide Convention, most rely on some form of determination of genocide. Um, on a side note, that isn't necessary, obviously. Um, the obligations to prevent and punish genocide arise where you learn of a serious risk that genocide will be committed. So you're not asking, has genocide be committed? You're asking, does there exist a serious risk that genocide will be committed? Uh, and I'm just on a separate note, just following on from Amanda Milling, that's what we've asked in our letter, is for the UK government to confirm that at the least they accept now there's a serious risk because they won't accept the determination of the tribunal. But I'll park that for now. That was the problem we had in terms of determinations. We wanted there to be a determination in the UK to engage those obligations. And the genocide amendment was the way of doing that. So what it would have enabled, and this was in the context of the trade bill and bilateral trade. So imagine a scenario where the UK is either pursuing a bilateral trade agreement with a regime accused of genocide, or has a bilateral trade agreement with a regime accused of genocide. Well, what do we do? You can't get a genocide determination in certain circumstances, China being one of them. So we were saying that in those circumstances, and this is what the amendment would have done, the High Court should be allowed to assess the evidence of genocide. If there is evidence that genocide is being committed, that trade agreement will no longer operate. Now, the government pursued spurious objections to this really quite inadequate inadequate arguments. One of them being, which I thought was remarkable, was this idea that it eroded the separation of powers. It gave too much power to the court. It's for parliament to have its say over trade. Well, if your trade policy is that we shouldn't have bilateral trade, that is to say, we shouldn't trade on preferential terms with a genocidal state, all you're asking the court to do is look at the evidence of genocide. That's it. That was their role, the determination. That was it in terms of the actions and responses that was solely down to Parliament and Parliament would still have had to vote for the action from the court. So the government objected to it. Um, they gave loads of spurious objections. One of them was, and they tried to buy back support with this, is we're not pursuing bilateral trade with China. Well, we know from Amanda Milling's tweet now, yeah. that's not true. We know from the integrated review, that's not true. We knew at the time that wasn't true. I think at the time, Lord Grimstone said in a House of Lords, Lords debate, and I remember the quote almost word for word, that, the U, uh, that China is an important trading partner to the UK and we are in pursuing increased bilateral trade. And that's a direct quote, it's in Hansard. I can find the reference for you if you'd like it. So we knew that wasn't true. And we knew that's why the government was so intent on resisting the genocide amendment. I think, I don't know if I can stress this enough. Sometimes you will have disputes over government. Sometimes they will have amendments that they, they don't like and they will oppose. The, the, the strength of opposition to this was something we hadn't seen for a very long time. They were whipping on three line whips and we had um, lobbying and whipping of MPs similar to that with the Brexit votes over the Brexit deals. So it was exceptionally strong whipping from the government because they were absolutely terrified about the impacts that this would have. Ultimately, we had three different types of amendments. None of them regrettably were passed. We did get the working majority down to single digits. Um, but it nonetheless um, didn't pass, which is a real shame. But as I say, that is, I, I, I can give it now, there are plans for future amendments to future bills, uh, which would enable that. Um, I think it's a real, real shame. But what the government did and what is presently in law is they introduced a wrecking amendment. So it's what they would propose as an alternative 
which in fact was completely useless. Uh, and this alternative applied, it didn't apply to, I don't think it applied to, I'm trying to remember now, it didn't apply to states with whom we have prospective trade agreements, nor did it apply to ones we, were, we currently have them with. So it was very restricted in scope. And all it did is it took the High Court out and replaced it with the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. And so the Select Committee can assess credible reports of genocide and then it can ask the government what action they're taking. They can do that already. That's what a Select Committee does. And the government can ignore them if they so choose, which they already do. So that was their so-called compromise in law. It's presently what the law is. It makes no difference at all. Um, so I think, and this, I think this is the point I've made before, in terms of the genocide amendment, in terms of all this opposition, we really are fighting for the bare minimum when it comes to the PRC, and it's just not sustainable. And I sincerely hope that as a Conservative Party and as a government, that attitude changes. You're, you're absolutely spot on there. It, it really is just the bare minimum. All, all it is essentially is just asking for recognition of what is happening. It, it, it really is as straightforward as that. And one of the ways this is being done is through a, a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics. They're just under a month away now. So an, a number of countries have announced official diplomatic boycotts. The UK's, as you said previously, was something a bit of a, a fudge at Prime Minister's questions a, a few weeks ago. But th this idea of a diplomatic boycott by a number of different countries, what impact will that have towards actually holding the, the Chinese Communist Party to account? And will it, will it really make a difference? I think it's necessary but I would caution anyone who thinks, well, we've done that, we've done our part, that's it. Mm. Uh, because as you say, this will not stop genocide. Um, the very heart of the diplomatic boycott is the PRC are holding these games to legitimise their atrocities. That's what they're doing. It's a propaganda ploy. And the question is really, should the UK, should other governments play into that propaganda ploy or not? The answer for me is obviously no. We started to see that with other governments now, that's the line they're taking. Um, but as I say, that's the bare minimum. And we've been asking for a diplomatic boycott for well over a year. And it was only, as you say, announced a few weeks ago, where originally Kirsten Oswald, uh, an SNP MP, um, asked that question. And Boris Johnson was slightly opaque. Um, it was, ministers won't be going, but we weren't sure, just ministers also mean other diplomats, other officials, sort of what does that mean? So Ian Duncan Smith fantastically was up on his feet, um, got a question and said he wanted the Prime Minister cl to clarify, does that mean officials and others? And the Prime Minister did confirm, yes, that does mean all. Um, he did look quite flustered, so I'm not quite sure if that, <laughs> that was the policy beforehand, but it certainly is now. Um, but in terms of sort of its impact, that's pretty much it. It's to deny the PRC its propaganda ploy. And from our perspective, it's to raise awareness of the atrocities they're being committed. But in terms of stopping this genocide, in terms of holding the PRC to account, this is one very small piece of a much larger, larger puzzle. So the, the human rights issues that are, are going on in, in China, they were raised initially when Beijing was hosting the 2008 Summer Games. But as, we, as we've discussed already in, the, in this interview, there seems to be so much more awareness and 
outcry at this particular games, the, the Winter Olympics. So why do you think there has been such a clear shift in attitudes from many governments around the world, but even just within the, the national conversation and general discourse? I think one of the reasons you've already mentioned is, is just generally more awareness and certainly more scepticism towards the PRC, um, which is good. The second is that in terms of the abuses themselves, we have seen an intensification of those abuses. I mean, the Uyghurs have always been persecuted in the Uyghur region, um, but it's only in, I'd say, you know, 2015 onwards, we've really seen the intensification of that persecution, you know, concentration camps, torture, forced abortions, forced sterilizations, and forced marriage, indoctrination, prohibition of religion, destruction of cultural sites. And all those things we've seen recently, it's an orchestrated plan and it's designed to, in the long run, eradicate the Uyghur people as a people. So based on that then, would say a full boycott of the Olympics not make more of a statement than just saying, oh, well, we're not going to send a few ministers or a, a few uh, ambassadors maybe, or uh, senior foreign office officials. Would it not be more of a statement to say, actually, we're not sending anyone at all, maybe even not even athletes for certain sports? It would. Absolutely, it would. And I think if you look at the way that worked in South Africa, it had impact. Um, the reason strategically why we have adopted so far not to pursue a full sporting boycott is twofold. Um, first, the government do not accept sporting boycotts at all. Every time um, the, a diplomatic boycott was raised with the prime minister, and it was raised a number of times before um, that one PMQs, um, Boris Johnson's response always referred to the government don't support sp full sporting boycotts, but we will consider a diplomatic boycott. So it was part of that. Um, practically, we had to realise what can we realistically achieve? Uh, the second reason is that we didn't necessarily want Team GB athletes to be punished um, because awareness of the campaign is sort of where we're at is. Do we want to see it as top down? Do we want to see it as a penalty for a situation people don't know much about? Um, we are willing now to work with athletes, with sporting bodies who voluntarily will not want to go and will boycott those games because we think it will have that impact. Um, but in terms of the situation right now, we want to ensure that raising awareness is our main priority um, and that people are aware of what the PRC are doing and why they shouldn't attend these games, but it's ultimately for them to decide. So we, we've looked now at the, the governmental response, a, a parliamentary response, what courts can do, but fundamentally, when addressing in particular the, the Uyghur persecution and still say an alleged genocide, because we still need that legal declaration, it's what, what avenues are actually available to Uyghurs who just simply want to have the ability to tell their stories, to share their testimony, and fundamentally just have their day in court. We've already touched on the, the tribunal that took place last year, but what, what other opportunities and availability is there for, for the diaspora? States are reluctant to platform them. Mm -hmm. Governments and courts, there are no options. There, are, there is no day in court they can have outside of the Uyghur tribunal. So really so far the responsibility has fallen on us as civil society to platform Uyghur voices to raise awareness and I think each and every one of us can do that um, certainly if you're at a university for example and you want to hear from um, um, 
someone from the Uyghur diaspora, do get in touch with us. We can help you organise that. If you're also a student and want to get involved with students for Uyghurs, that's something my co-executive director, Jaya Pathak uh, and Eve Novius have set up. Please get in touch and we can help do that. Um, if you work for an organisation, if you work for a broadcasting company, if you work for a media outlet and you want to hear from the Uyghur diaspora, get in touch and we can help you do that. I think it really falls down to us to platform these voices. Um, certainly the achievements we saw last year would not have been possible if it wasn't for civil society and the wider public saying, you know, enough is enough. We've heard from Uyghur survivors. We've heard from the Uyghur diaspora. We've seen the inaction of the government and we won't tolerate it. Things need to change. And I think that's ultimately what we can do. And it may seem a long shot. And what I, I, I hear this question quite a lot, actually, and I think you might receive the same. You, it's China. You can't do anything about China. So what's the point? I'll tell you what the point is. I've met Uyghur survivors who suffered genocide. That's the point. That's who we're standing up for. And I don't care how big a country thinks it is. I don't care how powerful a country thinks it is. So long as I have breath, I will not allow any regime anywhere in the world to act with impunity. And I don't care if I'm just a, you know, a 23 year old from the West Midlands who's going to raise his voice. I'm going to do it so long as I can. And I think everyone can do that. You've done it. So many other brilliant people have done it. Your Conservatives are doing it. Labour members are doing it. Lib Dem members are doing it. This is cross party, cross community. And we have made a difference. So just to, to finish then, what's next for yet again? What, what have you got planned for 2022? 2022, all being well, is the year of charity registration. So up until now, we have been a youth-led organisation, uh, but we are planning on registering as a charity and fingers crossed receiving funding, which will enable us to broaden our work, um, develop more resources and get more staff. That's ultimately what we want to do. We want to expand our advocacy, expand our teams, expand our reach and expand our impact. And there, there may be people listening to this who feel really passionately about the, the issues we've discussed today on some of the other issues that Yet Again is campaigning and working on and simply want to do something to help or make a difference. So you've already discussed some of the other groups that people can get in touch with you about. But how can people get involved in joining in with your campaigns and raising awareness for some of these causes you're championing? Yeah, so all of the campaigns we um, talk about, we share on social media. So we always have actions of how you can get involved in the campaign. So, for example, with the Amanda Milling um, letter you've mentioned we've written, we're asking other people to write to Amanda Milling as well to say they support that letter. And could you please respond to that and echo that we, we've asked five questions of her and echo those five questions. So follow us on social media. It's at Yet Again UK on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the lot, um, including LinkedIn. Um, and all of our work will be on there. You can also visit our website. We have actual volunteer roles and vacancies at the moment. Um, so if you do wanna get more involved with the work we're doing on a part-time basis, and please do have a look at those roles. If there's not a role for you, still get in touch and we'll see if we can facilitate a way of working that works for both of us and you can make a difference. Okay, Joe Collins, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me.